Welcome to the PEDS-MP, Pearls of Pediatric Evidence-Based Practice, Episode 4, Rabies PEP. That means post-exposure prophylaxis. I'm your host, Becky Carson. Join us today as we talk about rabies exposure, wrist, and post-exposure prophylaxis in the pediatric patient. Beyond my better judgment, I'm going to tell you a really embarrassing story about me. I had a bat in my house one time when we were living in this old apartment building. We had a gorgeous wood-burning fireplace, and one evening I was home alone, and sitting on the couch, I look across the room from me and see a little rodent face pop up on the logs. And my miniature golden retriever, Lulu, was pointing, and she was ready to hunt. And then I saw the wings flap, and I totally lost it. I grabbed her, ran running and screaming from the room, and I could have absolutely handled it being a mouse, but a bat, for some reason, sent me running from the room. Why was I so scared of a little bat? I knew that bat exposure warrants rabies treatment in certain cases, and that that treatment involves multiple shots. And I give a lot of shots, but I wasn't exactly stoked about getting them. So to make a very long and embarrassing story short, I frantically chased the bat around the house with a giant plastic Tupperware and trapped it until my husband got home and we let it go. Don't get me wrong, I love bats. They are important pollinators and an environmentally pivotal species, but I don't love them in my house because rabies is real. And on today's podcast, we'll talk through some common issues with rabies and animal bites. Stay tuned. Rabies is a common enough virus in certain species that if you're working in the emergency department, urgent care, or even primary care, you'll certainly encounter issues related to it. And because the treatment includes multiple painful shots that are very expensive, it's especially important that we're using them on the right patients and avoiding them when the risk hasn't been sufficiently demonstrated. It may mean that you need to have a tough conversation with a worried family who's really scared because rabies has pretty scary connotations and is associated with animal bites. It may be important to contact your local authorities to get some input on whether they need rabies PEP because of the potentially fatal outcome. Or if you're savvy enough and know the research, it may just mean that an animal bite needs a thorough cleaning and a band-aid. One thing you'll hear me say over and over again is take it back to the patho, meaning that I want you to walk backwards from the current problem and think about the pathophysiology of what's going on. It's important that you understand what's going on with your patient on a systemic level, sometimes even a cellular level, so that we can best diagnose, treat, and manage their illnesses. So before we go treating rabies, let's understand it a little bit better. The rabies virus is a relatively slow-moving virus that's typically transmitted via saliva from a bite of an infected animal. Left untreated, it leads to an infection in the CNS, resulting in encephalitis and is almost always fatal in humans. Thus, decisions about treatment are urgent because of the seriousness of the disease, but not emergent because of how slow-moving the virus is. It can lie dormant in some animals for years, which is what makes eradication very difficult. And it's the reason that we started a nationwide vaccine program for domesticated animals like dogs and cats in the U.S. So 
Because we have these vaccine programs in the U.S., the most common transmission occurs from wild animals like bats, skunks, foxes, stuff like that. When infected, these wild animals might display an unusual lack of fear of humans before they develop what we consider those typical symptoms of foaming at the mouth and drooling. There are approximately 5,000 animal rabies cases in the United States every year reported to the CDC, and more than 90% of those occur in wildlife. Of those infections, 70% are attributed to bat exposures. So bats with rabies have been found in every state except Hawaii, and you can therefore see by those numbers why I was pretty nervous about having a bat in my house. But I knew from experience that my simple proximity to the bat did not warrant prophylaxis because bats are everywhere outside. So how would I know whether I needed PEP after a bat exposure? PEP can be considered for persons who were in the same room as a bat who might be unaware that the bite or direct contact had occurred and rabies cannot be ruled out by testing the bat. So a sleeping person awakens to find a bat in the room or you find a bat in a room with a previously unattended child. PEP would not be warranted for the other household members though. In my case, since I witnessed the bat fall down the chimney and trapped and released it without touching it, I thankfully did not meet criteria for PEP. However, if the bat had bitten or scratched me, that would be a different story. Rabies PEP is recommended for all persons with a bite, scratch, or mucous membrane exposure to a bat unless the bat is available for testing and is negative for the evidence of rabies. So if you're able to trap and test it, you might be able to avoid the treatment, but that's not always the case. I had a patient who was hanging out at her grandma's pool one evening, and as it started to get dark, there were bats flying around, and she had really beautiful, luscious, curly, thick hair, and a bat flew into her hair and got trapped. So she's freaking out and reaches her hand into her hair to grab and pull the bat out, but in the process of untangling it, it either bites or scratches her, and then it flew away. That bat was obviously not available for testing, so she definitely needed PEP. What about dogs and cats? As we said before, nationwide vaccine programs have been really successful at reducing the virus in the U.S., but not every country has these available, so the risk of rabies outside the United States is much higher, especially in developing countries. When I was living in Tanzania, there were three little boys in my town who were bitten by a rabid dog, and unfortunately, we had a lot of difficulty getting the vaccine and IgG to the hospital. So one of the children was bitten on the head, and he ended up having a much worse outcome. He passed away from the infection because he was bitten so close to his CNS. The virus can travel much faster if it reaches a nerve more quickly. It also travels faster in children but luckily the two little boys that had bites on their extremity were fine because we were able to get the IgG and vaccine to them in time. Each year in the United States there are 400,000 cat bites and 4.5 million dog bites in both adults and children but children account for 75% of bites because they're curious they're playful and they're often responsible for what we call provoked attacks. It's no surprise that the hand is the most common site of bites, and it's the most likely to become infected. We're not going to be talking about antibiotic prophylaxis or tetanus immunization today, but you should look that up separately as there are separate concerns for different kinds of animals. 
So what are the risks in dog or cat bites? What do you need to think about? First, you're going to talk to the patient or family about the animal. Was it an indoor pet? If a pet is an indoor pet that one, either never goes outside or two, only goes outside on a leash or witnessed in the backyard, then there's virtually no risk of rabies. Do we know the vaccine status of the animal? In many cases, if the animal was an indoor pet, like I mentioned before, and can be monitored for any abnormal behavior by the owners or animal control for a period of time, then PEP is not needed, even if the animal has non-current vaccine status. Find out if it was a provoked attack. A provoked attack would be a situation where the animal bite might be justified in the animal's mind if it felt threatened, such as having its tail pulled, defending its perceived territory, or having its food source threatened. In each of these cases, PEP is not recommended, and it's important to still contact animal control so that they can document the bite, follow through with the family of the victim and the pet owner. What about stray animals? You'd be really surprised at how skilled animal control is with apprehending stray animals. Because remember these situations are urgent, but not emergent, meaning that we have some time to take action on administering prophylaxis, If the family can give a good description of the animal and its last known whereabouts, animal control is sometimes able to catch and monitor the animal for abnormal behavior. This is most possible in urban settings where there's not a lot of wooded area for an animal to go unnoticed, and you might even have some other community members who are reporting the stray too. I had this happen in D.C. once where animal control was actually able to locate a pit bull that had bitten a child And based on the family's description of the animal's color and the street address where it had occurred, they were able to find the animal, monitor it, and we skipped PEP in that child, which saved a lot of money and a lot of painful shots. But if this were not possible, you'd have to consider the risk of rabies in your state. When I lived in Ohio, there had not been a rabid dog reported in the state for 20 years, so the animal control there did not recommend rabies treatment if the provider deemed an interaction between a victim and an animal to be low risk, meaning that it sounded like a provoked attack like we talked about before. At first, this seemed risky to me, but I did the math. If we're seeing almost 5 million bites per year in domestic animals in the U.S., and there were 362 reported cases of rabies in domestic animals in 2018... This comes to a rate of 0.0074%. So our animal control officials are using the evidence to support their practice and recommendations. I love it. With the caveat that you should still use your own medical decision-making with each unique patient encounter in order to decide whether you feel that PEP is necessary. So what about other wildlife like squirrels? Well, thankfully, small rodents such as squirrels, mice, rats, rabbits, etc. don't need bite prophylaxis because they generally succumb very quickly to the disease wherein they wouldn't be able to infect others. The squirrels in Washington, D.C. are unnervingly aggressive on the National Mall. They are skilled trash can divers, and unfortunately, I've taken care of more than one tourist who was foolish enough to try to feed them. The good news was that other than a good cleaning and a band-aid on the swollen finger, they don't need anything other than a lecture on common sense. So how should you manage post-exposure treatment? For a previously unvaccinated, immunocompetent patient, PEP includes wound management, which we're not going to cover today, 
IgG, and the vaccine. In combination, these can reduce the risk of rabies transmission by 90%. We have human diploid cell vaccine and purified chicken embryo cell vaccine in the United States. So first, the wound should be cleaned thoroughly with water and a cleansing agent. A weight-based IgG dose should be infiltrated locally into the wound as much as possible. This can get really difficult if you have a large child and a small wound. So any remaining IgG should be injected IM to a site distant from the wound. This occurs on day zero only. Day zero means the first day of post-exposure prophylaxis, not necessarily the day of the bite. The IgG should always be used in combination with the vaccine, except if the patient has already had the rabies vaccine. In that case, they don't need the IgG. Then they begin the four-dose vaccine series, which is given on days 0, 3, 7, and 14. On day 0, the vaccine should be administered in the opposite arm to avoid any interference between the IgG and the immune uptake of the vaccine. It's recommended to use the deltoid muscle to ensure that you really get into a muscle, i.e. if you do a gluteal injection, you might miss the muscle if there's adipose tissue in the way, and then you'd get vaccine failure. You can see that after the IgG, a potential IM injection of the remaining IgG, and the four vaccine series, this can be pretty painful and traumatic for children. So that's why it's important to really take the decision-making process seriously and use our resources to make informed decisions on risks. There's a great article in Pediatrics in Review on the general management of bites, which helps the provider think through the important aspects of history taking, evaluation, initial management, wound closure, and what prophylaxis would be needed like vaccines or antibiotics. I'd love to hear your thoughts and experiences on rabies exposure or animal bites. Comment below or send questions. Make sure you check out our show notes for references and resources. Again, I'm your host, Becky Carson, and I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, do it right for the kids. Take care.